Welcome back to another episode of the Shaken and Stirred Show. I'm Nigel Barker in Woodstock, and we have a rather fantastic guest once again on the Shaken and Stirred Show. Good friend of mine. Our guest this week is no stranger to the Shaken and Stirred Show. He's actually an award-winning independent filmmaker and television director, and now author with his novel, 99 Miles from LA. A fantastic guest once again on the Shaken and Stirred Show. Good friend of mine. Our guest this week is no stranger to the Shaken and Stirred Show. He's actually an award winning independent filmmaker and television director and now author with his novel 99 miles from la yes you've heard the song please welcome back my good friend p david eversell david how are you buddy i am very good i'm very good our lives are a little chaotic at the moment so <laughs> seriously chaotic i mean how much have you, have you got going on this book 99 miles to la la i've got an album with your right i've got cds i've got all <laughs> stuff you know so essentially there's a lot to talk about because you know I, I don't want to start but you just said you're really busy but before we get to how busy you are I hope you've got a cocktail well I of course I'm like I'm talking to Nigel Barker I have to have my cocktail with me right it looks very fancy you've got, you, have, you have a nice orange in yours meanwhile I have an orange glass what is your cocktail what are you drinking uh, it's just uh you know I like silver tequila on the rocks with an orange uh squeeze so why orange? Most people go with lime. I know. I like how it kind of changes the flavor. It makes it a little sweet without it being like a sweet mixer and it's, you know, less carbs. Less carbs than lime? <laughs> well, no, less carbs than like putting some kind of a mixer into it. True. That is true. And in fact, there are a lot of people. So I was asking because there are there's actually a movement in tequila of people who suggest orange over uh -huh. lime. So it's, it's a whole thing. And in large part, if you think about it, the margarita, which is the most popular um, tequila based cocktail in the US, is triple sec, which is orange liqueur. It's orange based, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's right. And so it, it, it's a natural that it goes really well with tequila. So if you're trying to have a skinny margarita, the true skinniest of skinny when it comes to a margarita would be, in fact, to do a squeeze of orange and right. not do the triple sec, Don't which is full of calories. Sec, right, exactly. in there. Only thing you're missing sugar. is lime juice. So if you add your own lime juice, you're pretty much skinny margarita all the way, by the way. See, there you go. I'm losing weight as I'm drinking. As you're drinking, which is the only <laughs> way to drink anyway. And, and I thought I would sort of join you. I did something a little different. I like to help, you know, sort of mirror something my, you know, my guests are drinking, but I can't do another straight tequila on the rocks. There's not much to really do with that. So what I did was, is that, and I've cheated because I couldn't find a copper glass. I did a tequila mule which oh. is a take on the Moscow mule, but we call it a Mexican mule. But, you know, as Moscow is so out of fashion these days, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I thought I would go with a Mexican mule, which is, you know, essentially a vodka buck, but with tequila. So a buck drink is any drink that has um, lime juice and ginger beer with, with a liqueur of, of sorts. And that's the traditional, that's what the, the, the Moscow mule was based on in the 1920s when it was first created in Hollywood and all the stars were drinking it in a copper cup. And, and actually there's nothing to the copper cup other than the fact it looks cool. It was a marketing gimmick done by Hollywood in the 20s that became famous. It does, it is nice and cool. It does take on the icy effect of the drink. But other than that, there's nothing to it. So if you wanna make yourself a Moscow mule in a glass, Go ahead. This right. is tequila, ginger beer. <laughs> You've learned I a used lot about drinking from doing this show, I think. Way too much. <laughs> I'm like, like a ridiculous encyclopedia of stories of right. drinking. I just remember you being kind of like a Sancerre kind of fellow when we 
knew each back in the day. And by the way, what do you mean you remember me being a sunset? God, that's so vanilla. I love it. <laughs> well, I I was Sauvignon Blanc, and you were and you were like, oh no, the, the French is better than the Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, because I like the Marlboro Sauvignon Blancs. But you, and, said and, you know, and, and now all my, all, you know, all my endorses from New Zealand are going to leave me now after you said that. <laughs> but um, it, we're off to a sailing start right here. Actually, you know, I, I am fond of a sunset, but I have come around. I in Vivo, oh, which is a fantastic Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand, is one of my go-to's. That's um, my daily wine. That's your daily what? Your daily oh, wine? Yeah, for lunch. Right. Exactly. I had that before my uh, my tequila. So look, let's let's jump into a couple of things before we get fully into your book, Ninety Nine Miles from LA. You are currently right now Ninety Nine Miles from LA, right? You're in Palm Springs. I live in Palm Springs, and so in the book, it's a crime fiction story. They commit their crime in Los Angeles, but they come to hide out in Palm Springs, which is pretty much what you did, right? That's why you're there. That's why we're here. Yes, it's autobiographical. And, and you are now leaving to Mexico, which is only suggests that they've actually caught up with you finally, and you're you're literally going to try to go south of the border. And not to give too much away about the story, but it is true that inside of the story, that's part of the plan is the runaway to Mexico, and now suddenly we've bought a house, so I can start writing the sequel. No, no, I, I'm aware of this. I'm 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 sort of you know secretly reading between the lines here, David, and I, I know there's something is 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 askew because you know this book, right? It's a fabulous book, by the way, super easy to read. And, you know, and it's a perfect holiday book, but you are a filmmaker. You are a documentary filmmaker, but you've also made other films as well. And, you know, you've done a lot of different things, as I mentioned, you know, television director, independent filmmaker. Are you planning on this book becoming a film? Is it like, was it written with that in mind? So it's, I actually purposefully did zero dialogue in the book. I don't know if you noticed when you're yeah. reading, but it's all kind of embedded in thoughts and you know what people like uh, literature. And I thought, well, why don't I try to do something that's like that? Like come up with some idea that's like a little bit different. So uh, my feeling is, is that I hope that somebody buys it, goes and makes a terrible movie and people come out saying, you know, I actually really like the book a lot better than that. <laughs> I hope they miscast it, get a terrible director, rewrite it, make a happy ending. That I doubt, but I, I I think it's you know it's one of those stories. I took it with me um, to the Cayman Islands and and had a fun read with it there. And it's 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 a, it's a super easy read. And I'm all, I want to get into the book a little bit more. But right now, let's talk about the title and everything. Ninety nine miles from L A. You know, it's a it's a pretty well known song. A lot of people have done a version of it. You know, you kind of get into it in the beginning of the book too. Is it, did you? I mean, it's it's a, it's a kind of a phrase too. You know, ninety nine miles from L A. What was your sort of incentive to name the book that? I mean, what, what, was it from the song or was it? It all started from the song, which is that uh, there's a there's a singer named Donna Lauren. Who I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but she's sort of a, she was in the Beach Blanket Bingo movies and a Dr. Pepper girl back in the day, a great singer. And she took us to a Johnny Mathis concert for her birthday. And I had never heard that song before. So I literally taped it you know, from, with my phone and kept it with me all that time. And I kept, there was something about it that was kind of haunting. Uh, what I like about it is that it's filled with hope, but you're almost sure that everything's not gonna work out okay in the end. You're like, it sounds hopeful, like please be there, but you know that this relationship is doomed. And so that was sort of the beginning of the idea. And I do a lot of noir in my work. So the idea of dovetailing that in with a noirish kind of, crime fiction, crime story made a lot of sense for me in this time 
when we have lost so much faith in our belief in the sort of American dream and the higher systems that are guiding us, when that happens, people begin to think, well, why am I the only person staying on the right side of the law? Everybody else is cheating. Everybody else is getting ahead through it. Why not me? And so then people are willing to kind of make that crossover onto the dark side. So between those two ideas, the characters began to get born. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, you described the novel as a hard-boiled crime story with a bisexual love triangle peppered with double crosses. Um, I mean, that's so you, by the way, is the way it's written. I mean, when I read that, I was just like, every word is is juicy in there, you know. And, and I love the way you write. And you know, you've added this bisexual element to it too, which is makes it modern, makes it kind of new. And, and I think is something that isn't often covered in crime stories as well. Was that important to you to kind of, to go there? Well, it, you know, it's funny, it was very natural to the characters. So what I wanted to do was have, yes, kind of a, a relatable love triangle story. And my main character, his name is Frank. Uh, he first meets this woman that he kind of falls for, gets involved with. She's the one with the big plan of how to steal all of her husband's money, but she needs partners. And so it turns out that the third partner is her bartender that she goes to regularly. Unfortunately, the two men, the minute that they meet, have sparks. And so that begins the sort of downward spiral, which is that he really had, had he potentially just sort of stayed with uh, the one who brought him, <laughs> then maybe it wouldn't have all gotten messed up. But you know, what are we supposed to do? We fall in love. Yeah, we fall, we definitely we, we fall in love. I mean, and it has all those elements. You know, again, sort of you know, this 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 title. And I, and I always want to go there because it's there's a you know you mentioned it from the song, but the, the, you know there's a story behind the song, right? And 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 the title as well. I mean, it, 99 miles from LA. Why did Palm Springs become such a big place for people to want to go to back in the day? I guess but in, when, in, when was it in Hollywood? Was it the 40s? It was around the Frank Sinatra time, wasn't it? The big uh, and, even, and even a little bit before that. But uh, but uh, the studios had a rule that you couldn't stray further than 100 miles away from set when you were engaged on a film because you had to be able to be called back. So this became it's you know just within kind of the 100 mile radius of what they call the studio zone. Uh, and so people would come here to get away, but know that they could be called back. There was also though in their contracts, a morals clause that said that if you do this, if you do that, you can lose your contract, lose your stardom. So your Rock Hudson's uh, and Marilyn Monroe wanting to have an affair with the president, where do they go to Palm Springs? Because even the gossip columnists would say, well, I'm gonna take off that hat. Hedda Hopper would come here and say, you know what? We're here. It's a. It was sort of like a, a a mini little sin city where they could get away, do whatever they kind of wanted. It was out of the radar of the studios, but they were within the rules of saying that they still could get back. So it's the original. What happens in Palm Springs stays in Palm Springs. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Was this pre-Vegas? Do you think, or they stole that line? <laughs> you know, I don't. That is not a question I know the answer to. I mean, I know that that Vegas sort of started with all of that. Uh, you know, Bugsy kind of uh, time period, he started the Tropicana, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's when that whole world grew. And I'm guessing that's the 30s. I mean, I'm not yeah. a, I'm not a, a, a Vegas aficionado. It, but, it would be, yeah, be a similar, sim, seems like a similar time period, wouldn't it? 
it's a similar idea. It's further away. So they wouldn't have been able to stay within the zone. No, they would not be in the zone. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, it's such an interesting concept that with the whole with that with that with the zone. I mean, it wasn't even as if because back then they didn't have the freeways that they do now. Right. So it's not like it's like like currently is like an hour and a bit. How far is it to drive from from Palm Springs to L.A. It ended now? up getting renamed the two hour law. You know, you know, a couple of decades later, once there were good freeways, uh, because, you know, from here to Silver Lake is 90 minutes, as long as you don't have traffic. Well, you always have traffic now, so it's always three plus hours. But but back in the day when they could get here in two hours, it was pretty close. But when the freeways were not so good, it was always three, four hours to get themselves out here. So that two hour rule is a more modern kind of concept that they came up with. But um it was it was close. It was close enough to get to and close enough to get back to set. Amazing. And what's Palm Springs like these days? Well, you know, it's always been a sort. I think this is another reason I really like it for for a noir is that it's always been a bit of a false oasis. When you're inside of it, it's manicured, perfect. Uh, you know, and it and it harkens back to the days of the 1950s. Uh, and the mid-century modern look of all of it, right? So you so you have that old American dream kind of all around you, and yet it's all as second houses uh, in the middle of a desert, and you know uh, you step right outside of it, and you're in some pretty dicey areas, which is why you know Desert Hot Springs plays a big part in the story as well, yeah. because you feel that idea that as long as you're inside of this little perfect world, everything's fine. Step outside of it, and then you know. Uh, there's uh, there's people lurking around every corner, so it so it had a nice feeling for a for a noir. There's been a lot of Palm Springs noir lately. There's a book on, on uh, Palm Springs noir uh, short stories, and there's been a lot of stuff done here lately. It does have a Truman Show esque vibe to it, in, in as much as it sort of feels completely. I mean, when you're there, like you said, manicured and perfect and all the rest of it, but you're in the middle of the desert too. And and then there's some rough areas too. There's a sort of... And hard light and dark shadows, right? Yeah, crazy hard light. I mean, fantastic <laughs> light, like some of the most extraordinary light because of that hardcore, you know, desert light and yeah. shadows are jet black. But then the hard light is almost more kind of brutal than like, say, if you're in LA and in the and and out in the light of day, right? Like here that's part of the brutal world is the heat. Yeah, well, you, you don't have the smog. So I guess that's one thing, right? Right, that is true, that's true. We're, we're beginning to get traffic. Crazy. We're not very popular, so. <laughs> very popular, well, hence you've sold your house and you're moving to Mexico. Um, well. <laughs> yes, that is true. Yes, no? So, but <laughs> why Mexico? There's a place in Mexico called Merida. I don't know if you've been, but it's uh, it's on the Yucatan. It's the capital of Yucatan. It's the second safest city in North America. And it's become a new kind of expat community. So a lot of people from the East Coast, us West Coasters don't know it as well because we go to Baja California, right? But on the East Coast, people use it as kind of a vacation area. But a couple of good, very good friends have been moving down there. The community is gay. And for us, we have two Pitbull girls that we have to be able to take with us any place. So people who were talking about moving to Portugal, Spain, et cetera, were like, well, we can't do that because we can't get the girls across the water. So we have to be landlocked. It has to be a place that we can actually drive to. So your, uh, your dog's going to play a part in the book too. They do. They do. Well, the, the history of our dogs is how the book kind of starts, which is that the way that the two main characters meet 
is at the UCLA Sculpture Garden and Shelly, the main female character, has taken her beloved pit bull there uh, because she's on her last legs and she wanted to take one more kind of romantic gesture, be outside with the dog um, and kind of, you know, give her a moment. And that's when Frank happens upon her and helps her out, takes her to the vet and, and helps her to euthanize the dog. So that scene is right out of mine and Todd's life, which is that we had our first pit bull, her name was Killer, and we had taken her to the vet and found out that she had to be put down, but we were like, we can't just do this in this cold room. Let's go up to the UCLA Sculpture Garden. And so I kind of just sort of, I use a lot of things from my own life. It's something that is a sort of form called auto fiction, autobiographical fiction, which a lot of people have been, uh, have been doing over the years. It goes back to kind of Truman Capote a little bit before as well, but where you take things from real life and from your own life and then weave it into a story. Yeah, no, actually, I, and I wanted to talk about your style and, and what inspires you. But, you know, certainly with a, you know, you, you, this is a new thing for you, this particular type of book, right? So what was there something, was what drove you to say, okay, I, I want to write a book now? Well, as I say, I was an English major. So to me, it was the, it's the top form, like to, to write a book and, you know, I go into a bookstore and people go across, you know, E and they go E, E, A, E, B. Oh, and they pull out, you know, your book from the, from the alphabetized stacks. To me, that has always been the top dream to, for, for me to have accomplished that. And I, I'm, it's not like we, I've had a, a bad life. I mean, I ended up getting sidetracked into making films and that became my career and what I've done. But that has always been still kind of haunting me as something that I wish that I had gotten done. So this thing came along called the pandemic and we were all stuck at home and we had finished our latest movie and kind of were looking for the next outlet and it wasn't going to be another movie because you can't really interview people and go out into the public and, and create a film. So I said, well, why don't I do that book that I've been thinking about for so long? And 99 Miles from LA had, was the book. I mean, like I've been making notes on it for five, six years. Uh, but it came out in a week. I mean, I'm sorry, in a month. It came out in a month. So wow. once I sat down to write it, I went to Provincetown for a kind of writing retreat and I had all these notes, it just blah, 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 it came. And what part did Todd play in the whole thing? Uh, well, he, he and I take walks together every day. It's so normally we write together. So sorry for everyone out there, Todd is, is David's partner. Yeah, husband. Husband. Um, and, and partner. I mean, like, you know, we, we, uh, we do partner all- Partner in crime. Work all of our creative work together. So uh, it was strange actually to do something on your own. Uh, and I've had a little trouble not speaking in we when we are even talking about, you know, the the book because I'm so used to Todd and I are pitching our project and talking about it. The last it. time you were on here, the both of you were on. Right, yeah. And well, I asked Todd if he wanted to be on, because you know, he's on, he's on the record. So, you know, there's Todd, right? And I said, well, do you want to come on and talk about the record? And he was like, no, no, that has to be about you. Like, you know. It can't be, <laughs> we can't, we can't muddle, muddy the waters. But uh, uh, so, but we, every morning we take dog walks and we work out story ideas. So it's like, I would be struggling with what's going to happen next and how do I get the next characters to, you know, to get to that next plot point that I'm working on. And so I would just be talking out loud with them about it like we would normally do if we were going to go then and accomplish that together. But in this case, it was like, oh, okay, well, now I have to go back and do it by myself. You know, like, I didn't have anybody to help me. 
Amazing. It's, it's always interesting. When, you, when I'm looking at the book too, it's interesting because the, the chapters are short. You know, they're, they're quick and short and sharp. Yeah. Is that intentional? Or is it, it, is purposeful. it to be like, like that? Well, what I wanted to do, and I suppose maybe this comes from kind of my filmic training, but I wanted to, it to always pitch you forward. So I wanted you to know that it's like, and you know, the idea of kind of almost creating cliffhangers so that when you get to the end of a chapter, it's saying to you, oh, what, what's coming next? But I'm also doing something that my publisher uh, informed me is very, is very difficult and very tricky, uh, which is that I'm, I'm changing perspectives. So from my three main characters and actually the fourth main character, which is the, the husband, Manny, uh, who they steal all the money from, uh, I go into each character's perspective. And so when I change chapters, often I'm changing into the next person's uh, inner story so that you're so that it's coming from that person now. So it gave me a lot of freedom to constantly come up with ways of approaching and moving the story forward. You're never stuck because every time you kind of get to a place with a certain directive, the next character comes in and helps you sort of jump forward into the into the next things. The way I write, I write in what I call tent poles. So, and I do this in, in film, uh, we do it in our documentaries. We know certain things have to happen as you sort of lay out the story. You know, you know, these characters need to meet, they need to get a third person to join them for the crime. The crime has to be committed. Um, they have to go on the run. They have to end up in Palm Springs. Like those are the things I know, but I don't know all the little stuff in between. I don't know like sort of how I'm gonna get to any of those particular tentpoles. And so the characters begin to talk to you. And as you keep those, cha those chapters short, when you keep the chapters short, you get to jump to that new perspective and that character that comes in can help you kind of with a, with a through line to the next story point. So it was both to help me, but I think also it keeps the reader um, moving, jumping and moving along with it. No, I, I found it, that's, hence, I think it's, it's a really good, vacation read i think it's a good read anyway but it's but it's certainly you know I, there's certain books i like to read at night to go to sleep yeah yours was not one of them yours was not that i didn't like reading it for that but i didn't i found myself taking it in the middle of the day to go read in the afternoon or in the, in the morning and and it was like some books i'm like oh no this will be the perfect book that will i'll read a chapter and then i'll want to go to sleep <laughs> you know and I, it's sort of like this is great and i'll i'll calm down and all the rest yeah. of it but yours is, it was, was 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 quite different and i think if i'm not mistaken you don't find out the name frank's name until uh, this not until the, not in the first chapter you don't mention his name well that might be true uh his name is kind of is kind of tricky and kind of a a reveal uh, because he's going by a pseudonym, and when he when he meets people, he introduces himself as Frank, uh, and then it gets revealed as to what his real name is, and there's a bit of a story behind uh, his feelings about that. So um, I I hesitate to to do spoilers, right? To tell people no, exactly, exactly, and I've been careful too. I'm trying to dance around it because you guys have to go get get it 99 miles from LA. But it is it is super interesting, you know, how you write and and you know, I guess you mentioned where you went to write. Is it important where you go to write? You know, you went to Provincetown, and where else did you write? And why Provincetown? It's nowhere near where you live. 
I, you know, I think the most important thing is to get away from where you live. So to write is to isolate and, and get it done. And also I write in rhythm. So I have to, even when I stop for, you know, a couple of days, I have to go back to the very beginning of the book, read myself all the way back up, do fixes as I go, get back in the feeling and the rhythm of the book to be able to go forward. So to go someplace where you have a concentrated amount of time means that you can keep doing that. And every day that you wake up, you're still in it. You're still in it. You're still in it. But when you're home and then you, you know, you've got a cocktail party, you've got this to go to and, you know, uh, your sister calls or, you know, whatever it might be, it's always kind of pulling you outside of that. So I tend to, when I write, go on a retreat and Provincetown was just, you know, a, it's a place we love to go to, uh, it's a place that's kind of, you know, at the edge of the world. So we felt like we'd get away for a minute and it worked out really well. It was, it was a great, we, we drove across country to get there. And as we were going, we were, you know, in the car for hours and discussing kind of the ideas and what I thought I might write and then listening to other books on tape and things like that. So that by the time I got there, like I said, I mean, day one, I was just kind of ready to go. When I, writing is rewriting so you know once you get that first draft done the next thing you have to do is sort of get into honing making things better so we did a second writing retreat up in joshua tree which everyone thought was really strange because of how close to home it was I know, it's it's in palm springs what are you going up to joshua tree for a you know for a writing retreat but it's the same concept we had to be alone and in a house and where no outside influences could kind of you know dictate what was next and what we needed to do and todd at the same time was beginning a book that he's written that comes out this September, September 29th, about his favorite movie star, Elizabeth Scott, who was a film noir queen. So they kind of had a, they kind of have a, a touchstone together with the two books. So, you know, both the two of you, um, David and Todd, everyone helped me. They ghost wrote my book, uh, Beauty Equation, the first book that I, I did. And um, it's funny to your, to your point, when I would give you notes and all my notes on it that you would then turn into actual something. Um, I, had, I had to go and do that somewhere else. So I did that. I actually wrote pretty much all of it um, when I was in um, Sydney shooting America's Next Top Model. Right, I remember that. Yeah, in yeah. a hotel room and I would just be in my room. And, I, and I, you're right, I don't think I would have got it done otherwise because I would have been you know, just with my children and life and stuff, but being in a hotel room in another country, in another continent, in another time zone, yeah. that, that I could just be completely, you know, fixated on what I was writing and, and be, you know, not, not disturbed. And, and it was actually fantastic. So I, I, I see that completely. It's very interesting. It 16 hours ahead of us, I remember. So we would, you know, we'd have to try to kind of figure out when could we talk where, you know, we could, because one of the things in that process that was so uh, great was that when we would write chapters, then you would read them back so that we would make right. sure it sounded like your voice, right? Because here we are writing something to you and for you and, you know, and helping you to, to bring across your ideas. But then it's like, well, it can't sound like us. <laughs> you know, it still had to sound like you. And you'd read something and then go, oh, I wouldn't say that. Or, oh, that was, you know, that. Well, we know you so well. So we were like able to kind of speak in Nigel. Which you you did very well, it's, but it's funny because fun because I reading your book, I could feel hear you. You know, so it's no. funny. I, I I it was it's sometimes you know you see something someone's done, but it's like the, and you and they you know it's different. But this was very much 
had a maybe because I know you too, but I I, I felt you through the book, you know, and I had a sense of you, which is fun, which is nice, you know. But you know, I'm not an actor by any means, and so when I, the book on tape has been done and it's it's beautiful, it's done by a friend of ours, Roy Samuelson, who has this great, uh, you know, kind of beautiful delivery, and he starts out and it's kind of like he enters it kind of slowly. And I thought, is he right? Like, is he on character? Is he on, is he on board with like the right way that this should feel? And then it's like, because he is really good, it would slowly, slowly, slowly get more emotional. And you got more wrapped into the story with him and through him. And it was very interesting because I agree with you that, that to me, it sounds like me and my voice. But when you then hear somebody else's voice do it, right. it was very interesting. That is interesting. How did you pick him? We know him well, and, and he's phenomenal at what he does. And I asked him if he would do it for us. And so he did it at cost. Like he just said, you know, they make me charge this much at, um, at Audible. And so I'll do it at that, at, at that rate for you. Interesting. What a strange world that is too, the sort of voiceover world, you know, was it was it important for you that, that you know the, the voice the sound you wanted him because you, i mean you know him but i mean is sounded, it... yes and his voice his i guess what happens by him reading it is that it becomes more frank's book than my book right because he feels more like that character he feels like he's becoming that person and the other thing is is that is that roy is openly gay and i needed somebody who it's like when they're having the the male attraction that it felt real and felt correct and you know to with audible i don't know if you know sort of how it works but often what you do is that you just sort of go on and you get somebody assigned to you you get a you know you um get a producer by signing on to audible and then they kind of give you some some sounds and you listen to some people and you put it together but uh in this case i was like well i'm already going to know what the, the quality of his voices and what it will come out like. So it felt much safer. Wow, that's interesting. I did not know the process. Um, I think, I don't think any of my books have actually become audible books, but they're not really that kind of book, to be honest with you. It would have to be you if it was like- I know, I would have to do it myself. <laughs> We'd be mad if it wasn't you. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. It's some fake Nigel Barker out there. <laughs> Someone putting on a, a good English accent, which meanwhile, people, my accent's fake as well. I'm actually from Detroit, but I don't tell anyone <laughs> that. It would never have been a success on America's Next Top Model. Um, you, a portion of the sales of each book goes to an animal shelter in Palm Springs. Is that correct? It is. And the reason for it, uh, the publisher asked me, like, is there any charity that you'd like to have a couple of dollars per, per sale go towards? And you know, the, as I said, the book starts. That's, off, with, that's after their take, though, right? That's not correct. before the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not looking at the books. <laughs> but uh, but uh, he asked me if there was anybody that I would like money to go to, and so we wanted to do something for kind of uh, pitbull rescue. With uh, we, we now have our fourth pitbull girl rescue, and. They give so much to us that we just thought, well, is there a way that we can kind of give something back to them? And I called Palm Springs Animal Shelter where we got our last two dogs. And they said we could even, you know, do it officially. Like we could actually have it be a part of the book and, and mention it inside of the book. So I'm ha happy about that. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. You, you know, again, you know, 
there's there's so many fun beautiful things that you do and but you always manage to sort of keep it real and, and i think that's it's such a nice thing and i read that in the book i'm like oh that's so nice and i remember butchie butchie right so butchie passed away god now she this this house is called butchie's dream house uh we name each house after the after the people of the of the moment um and uh then Fido is, we've had now, we've had her for five years, but she passed away when we were making the Mansfield movie, the movie about Jane Mansfield. Right. And uh, so then during the pandemic, we knew that we were home long enough that, ah, see, look. I have the album right here as well, the Mansfield album. Here's the soundtrack. It's on original vinyl for Jane. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, and... Uh, we were, we've always wanted a second dog and we always thought that Fido could really use a sister. And so when it was, we were home and knew that we could help train them together, we got Oopsie, Oopsie Daisy is her name. And she sat at my feet the whole time that I was writing the book, literally like, you know, almost on my feet while I was writing. And she kept saying that she wanted to, you know, to be in the show. She was like Lucy, she wanted to get in the, in the movie. She wanted to get in the show. So I was uh, trying to figure out a way to do that and I came up with this sort of idea of uh, a second pit bull that comes into the story and offers some kind of hope. Turns out that it's a that it's a boy instead of a girl because uh, the the main character flips. He wants to name her Daisy. Flips it over, and the young uh, Mexican boy who's selling it to him says "Oopsie Daisy," and the dog smiles and barks. So he goes, oh, "Okay, I guess that's that's the dog's name." I know this is just a this is a book, not a not a film yet. But if there were a soundtrack, would it be just ninety nine miles to L A. or and if so, who would who would you have sing it, and what else would you have on it? Well, there are great versions to the song, but uh, the main character and his uh, you know main love interest, which is Ramon, really end up together, kind of having Johnny Mathis as their touch point. So I think it, I think probably a Johnny Mathis soundtrack overall would be fantastic. But, uh, you know, people like Julio Iglesias, uh, Dionne Warwick, um, Art Garfunkel, like so many people have done the song. So it would actually be really great that it was all different versions kind of creeping in in different places. But I've told my agent, I don't, I don't wanna do the movie. So, cause you know, the first question is, well, when are you writing the screenplay? I was like, you can sell it if you want to, but just don't make me like try to do this thing of taking something that I wrote to be an actual thing. See, the thing about a screenplay is it's a blueprint. You don't like, you're not film, you're, you're not creating a real thing. You're creating a thing for everybody else to come together to make. When you write a book, you know, a book is a book and that's it, it's done. It's on a bookshelf. And there's an intimate relationship between you and the reader. You, they envision when they read it, they see what you've written. When you write a screenplay, now a director comes along, now an actor comes along, now a production designer comes along. It's what's great about movies is collaboration, but, it, but it's all of that coming together that creates the vision and creates the movie. So I purposefully just didn't want it to be that for myself because I've done it my whole career. That's what, that's what I have spent my time doing. And you, know, you, know, you mentioned that and it's funny because I think there's this stigma attached too to when books are turned into movies always as if you know how many times most almost 99 percent of the time you always hear the book was better than the movie 
the book was better than the movie. Right. Is that something that authors fear, or is it just is it because clearly you can get into more detail in a book, or, or you know, what what is that? Well, there are rules in writing screenplay, and one of them is that you can only write what you can see. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, which is that a movie is up on a screen, and how can you write what's inside of somebody's head? I mean, obviously, great actors pull across internal moments and you can feel what they're thinking but you can't as a writer say what they're thinking and in a book that's almost what your job is is to talk about all the rest of it you're talking about you know um why the color of a palm tree is important uh or you know the history of the palm springs valley suddenly comes in to be underneath what your character's motivations are well unless you're going to do flashbacks and take people out of the story you can't do that in a movie so it's part of why I think people always say the book is better than the movie is that is that the tone of a book is to take you to all of those worlds. The, the point of a movie is to put something up on the screen and you have to be able to see it. It's dialogue and action. That's what you write. You never write internal thoughts. And in fact, you don't write really what people wear. I mean, you can if it directly pertains but the idea that something is set in the 70s, well, now the, you know, the wardrobe designer will come along and decide what, you know, Jennifer Lawrence should wear. So you're not, you're not dictating your, your whole world when you write a screenplay. When you write a book, you have to, because the only thing is going to be between you and your, and your readers. So it's, a very, it's just a completely different form. Wow, interesting. No, that, and it makes complete sense. Uh, and it, but at the same time, it makes you realize too that clearly, the, you know, if it, it depends on the caliber of your acting or, or the acting performances to whether they can actually bring all those nuances that perhaps, you know, do, I wonder, do you know, I mean, do actors then, when they get the screen, screenplay, do they then go and read the book too? Or is that, is that going to cause them problems or should they know both? Or Do you know, I, don't, I mean, I would imagine that they're all kind of different, that some people want to stay away from the source material because they're creating off of the page. And some people really want to know what, what brought this to the screen because it will help them to fill in the blanks. Because as I say, in a screenplay, there are a million blanks. I mean, there just have to be. So if you were uh, a great actor and trying to fill in and try to figure out well, what is all the way behind before she says that one line, if you go to the book, you might find out. So I would think it's sort of like, the same thing as researching a real life character. If you want to play that person well, you want to know their history. Now you've written one. Do you have a bug? Did you did you, did you enjoy it? Was I it? Do. Uh, and you know, again, without giving them too much away, the end of the book, somebody does end up in Mexico. Once again, going back to sort of my my strange autobiographical <laughs> connections. But so I have this idea that now that I'm going there and I will be able to kind of do my own research about being an expat and living there and discovering that world, that I have an idea for a sequel called 24 Hours from Tulsa, which is also a song uh, where um, a love affair happens, but because of the crime that was committed in this book, uh, the person can't get across the border to the person that they've fallen in love with that's in Tulsa. I knew there was a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> See, and then I have to try to think of like more songs with numbers and cities. 
I know exactly. It's, it's curious. I mean, it sounds. Do you, do you, when you do you think of the song and then the the book, rest of the book comes, or were you more about the the storyline and then the, the the title just was fit? I mean, at least these two times, like at the the idea of the song is part of what helped me come up with you know with cobbling together a story. But you know, you don't want to be. I mean, I think she's an extremely successful author and sells eight billion books. Isn't it Sue Grafton who like every every mystery starts with a M is for this or E, you know, E is for that or whatever it might be. Like for me, I might do it again, but I don't know that I would just keep doing it, have it be my thing. I think I'd have to kind of move off of it at some point. But I do have an idea, which is that I have left this person alone in Mexico and there is a story that could continue from it. So I'm thinking maybe. So you talk, we're talking music right now, but you know, you sent me and I just, here I'm looking at your album cover, 21st Century Boys. It has you and Todd on it and it has two other gentlemen on it. I, I played it a lot. I'm very familiar with, I mean, I'm a bit, I was a big T-Rex fan. And so I would love 20, 21st Century Boy. Um, what, this is you, you're singing on this, right? This is we you. We are, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's two lads from Liverpool. And the guy in the in the bottom corner next to Todd, he's right. like our pet shop boy. He's the genius, the musical genius. And the guy on the other corner is is the fantastic singer. They're in a band together. And the way what the whole thing, doing? And, and we're singing also. We sing, we sing through the whole thing. We're like, we're banana rama, our, our voices blend. Yeah, I was gonna say Banana Rama and Pet Shop Boys. I've never heard that as a mix. As a, as a, as a <laughs> Meets T Rex. We call ourselves a, a pop punk boy band. Uh, it, it's hilarious. Except boy, look at him. So the other wishful, guys put the boy in the boy. Wishful band. thinking, my friend. Um, you know, it says the man with who's bald on the cover. But yeah, and then the boy underneath you looks incredibly like he's sort of. You know, I mean, it's 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 a it's a great cover too. What was the concept for the cover of this album? And I love it's on vinyl. Um, uh, Joseph Caltis is a fantastic photographer. I don't know if you're familiar with his work at all, but he did yes. Marilyn Manson's uh, album cover. Uh, the famous one, Technical Animals, is that what it's called? And he's done Bjork, uh, B-52s, he does everybody in the music industry. And he's one of my closest friends and I've known him since I was an NYU student. And he's always kind of done portraits of me over the years. And so those two portraits of Todd and I are, are portraits that he had done of us. And we thought that they had just such a, a great feeling for an album cover. So he talked to a photographer in Liverpool and gave them all of the exact specifications and, you know, kind of zoomed in to the, to the session to photograph the other two boys exactly the same. No, and, and then, it's funny, it's funny you should say that, right? Because, okay, I am a photographer, as, the, as you guys all know, and I looked at this and I thought to myself, and I'll just tell you straight up, that the light's different. Ah, uh, well, so and and I wondered why, and I kind of and I looked at it, and I'm like, it's similar, similar, but not the same. Exactly. And so same. if you look at it, and you can see, right in in your eyes, you know, you have a wide light that goes across. And if you look at the cover yourself, you'll see it goes right across your eyeballs. And on the boys, they have a round dot for a light bulb in their oh, eyes. Oh, you're right. A straight and, one versus a dot. You're right, versus a dot, right? right? And if you look at the light on the side of their heads, 
the light wraps around on both of their faces onto their onto the side of their faces on both of them and on you and todd it does not do that it lights the top of your head but not the side of your head right so it doesn't come all the way around in other words the wrap is greater on theirs Correct. than yours <laughs> but it's not the same it's similar but right. not the same and i picked up on it when i looked at it and i thought to myself that's unusual clearly it was not shot at the same day and clearly not shot at the same time or someone right. kicked the or light actually down. by the same photographer and i did not know that part but yeah, now i now it all makes sense someone through it the mystery the mystery is now solved and, and you know I, I said it to christy and she's like what are you talking about and i'm like i'm like look and she's like she's like it looks the same to me and I was like, no, oh, it's not. It's like a crime. I'm like, look at the eyes. Look at the story. There's a difference. There's a, a different light altogether. And she's like, oh, God. I'm like, she's like, you're looking at it too hard. Anyway, so there you go. So there's your secret. You look carefully, people. In the eyes, you can 100% see it. And it's like, you know, it's the Americans versus the Brits, maybe. It is the Americans versus the Brits. And and, I, and this sort of the, the shirtless look too. I mean, it's a it's a it kind of has a, a prison vibe to it, you know, because of the, like you're stripped right. off, and you, yet yet it's sort of very refreshing and kind of like I love the light blue. And then what's on the back? I mean, you've got a, a picture of a young lady um, who looks like this is a retro scene here. Maybe what, what is this meant to be from the sixties or something? So we, so we licensed that photograph and then put our album on top of her stack of of records. Like she's listening to our record along with, as it turns out, Al Martino, Spanish Eyes is right underneath it. You know, we do a lot of work with Alison Martino, his daughter. And so we thought it was just a nice little tribute to Al. And uh, I don't know, it kind of, it, the, the album ended up getting made in the Czech Republic uh, because there's no vinyl anymore. You don't have it, like you can't get any vinyl in the United States. So we felt like it was kind of like a girl in the Czech Republic listening to records and listening to our record in her bedroom. So you recorded it though, clearly in the US, but did you record it with those guys from the UK or did they record separately? They did all their parts and all the music in the UK. And we did our vocals in a, at, at Palm Springs recording studio. And how awkward is that to do that? Is it okay? Is it awkward? Is it weird? Do you know what? No, it's, it's funny because I think it's very rare now that people go into a studio together and do it all at the same time anyway. So you would yeah. always be kind of doing your individual part, right? Even if maybe, you know, you're all hanging out together or something like that and someone's in the green room and I'm in the studio singing my part. It's like nobody ever really actually comes into the room and performs everything all together. It's it's such a strange thing. I know you're right. And I've I've known this for ages. I mean, I've we've had multiple you know performers and, and recording artists on the show and you know who've done collaborations with Kanye West and so on and so forth and and I'm like wow it must have been amazing they're like well I actually never met him I never met him right exactly I'm like what well, are you talking like, you about know, you have a hit single with Kanye people sometimes like, yeah, are up in the up in arms about the idea of like we're Donna Summer and and uh Barbara Streisand ever in the same room you're like well does it matter like <laughs> their two voices are in the same room well it matters in your mind when you kind of fantasize about what happened <laughs> You know, it's all a part of the fantasy, David, which I know you understand, but it's sort of, I, I, it's again, I'm curious, how did you meet them then? What was the process like if you, you hadn't met them and you, or you, I'm assuming you've met them at some point in the past. Jay, Jay who is the, the, our pet shop boy, the musical genius, um, James Peter Moffat, but Jay, he goes by, he uh, is our musical genius. He's done the scores for the past three movies. 
And so he did the score for Mansfield. He did the score uh, for the Trudy Lopez movie. And he did the score for, uh, for House of Cardan, our Pierre Cardin movie. And he and Mikey have actually then had a couple of songs on those different soundtracks. And we know his band, it's called uh, White Rabbit Club. And they're kind of a, you know, a indie band uh, kicking around the UK together. And we were planning a movie. The way that this whole thing happened is that we were put, trying to put together a narrative film. And we had this idea about doing a star making thing like idol maker where the lead guy who was going to be in the movie we were also going to have him record an album and then we were going to try to put that album out as part of kind of making this kid a star and the money for the movie fell apart but we had done all the work on the album so we had all the tracks all the music everything all put together jay had done all the work and mikey had done all of the scratch tracks for uh, you know, for the guy to listen to, learn the parts and sing a lot and then, you know, make it his song. And so we were driving to LA one day when the whole thing fell apart. And I said to Todd, well, you know, we kind of always wanted to do a record. Why don't we make it the Eversole Hughes Company singers like the Enoch Light singers or the Ray Charles singers. And we'll just all, we'll all sing. We'll let Mikey do the heavy lifting on the high notes. <laughs> and, uh, and he's already kind of done the, the all the scratch tracks, so he knows it. And we called Jay and he was like, that's a brilliant idea. Let's start trying to put it together that way. So uh, the songs were all chosen by Todd for his character. It was a movie that Todd had written, that Todd was directing, that I was producing. And so Todd had already chosen all the, all the material and how he wanted to kind of present this kid. And when the whole movie fell apart, we were like, well, why don't we do it instead? And there's sort of a weird, parallel to the book, which is that my main character is a frustrated wannabe pop star that ends up an adjunct professor in music at UCLA. So you're sort of like, well, I guess I kind of figured out how to make my own record <laughs> as, the, as the, the ersatz main character of my, of my book. You know, it's, I love it. I mean, quite frankly, you've, you've directed films, you've been films, you've written a book, you've got an album, Whatever next? I know, right? Like, what do we do? What's what's like the next thing we do to try to top our own selves? I don't know. I mean, I don't either. I mean, it's like I, I you feel like you've topped me at this point, which is which is not <laughs> shocking. Hibernate, right? <laughs> not shocking, but I'm I, I love it. I'm like, damn it, I want a record. Like, <laughs> I don't have a record. I need to speak to my manager. Where's he? I don't have a record. <laughs> Where's my record? <laughs> She's gonna be like, you sound like it's a goddamn Eversole Hughes boys. They've got a record. I want a record. God damn it! You know, and they're singing T Rex as well. But I want to sing T Rex. You got a whole band. You got your kids. You got Chrissy. I'm sure everybody could. You know, I want to go up. bang a gong. <laughs> My goodness! Look, before we let you go, I want to. We have one more last thing called Last Orders on on the Shaken and Stirred show, where we we get into some rapid fire questions and just learn a little bit more about you, but. 99 miles from LA, everyone, comes out May, what date? Uh, well, actually, it comes out this week. Amazon has already started to ship uh, because they get to do whatever they so want. Advanced sales right now. But this, our podcast comes out today is Thursday, everyone. If you're, if you're listening to this on the very first day, if not all this week, it's out. So it comes out potentially when? Uh, well, May 13th was, a, was the first street date. And so there you go. 
it's already been shipping though. People, friends have been sending me pictures themselves like with the book. So I know it's getting out there. But you know, the nice thing about the world today is, is that you don't have to buy from Amazon. So you can buy from your own indie bookstore. We're, we're you know, published by a, by a reputable publisher. So we're in every system. So if you were to go to the local bookstore in your town and ask for it, they can, you know, get it, order it and have it. Fantastic. 99 miles from LA. P. David Eversol, last orders, mate. If you could drink, and you've got a good, you've got to have a good answer for this. If you could drink any cocktail from any movie or television show with a character from that show, who and what would it be? Well, it's, you know, you sent me this question in advance, and I thought I'm going to stick with my film noir theme. So my favorite, my favorite movie, my number one favorite movie of all time is Gilda, starring Rita Hayworth. So I'd like to sit in that club with Rita with Rita Hayworth. With her singing, um, you know, uh, uh, what, the song is you can you blame it on Mame. Uh oh, I just forgot the name of the song. Uh, in any case, to sit with Rita Hayworth while she's, you know, she's strumming her guitar and singing to me, and I'm sipping a martini. There you go, a martini. What would she's uh, a a martini up with an olive? Fantastic, love that. Okay, we're gonna. I'll take that. Who would play you in the movie of your life? Well, I would be Nigel Barker. <laughs> okay. You'd be a little more handsome than me, maybe have a, you know, a little more charming than me, but. Neither of those are true. I, I, I think, you know, I would, I would have to probably, you know, train my accent, my voice, unless you want to sound like an Englishman, because I'm appalling at doing accents. The, the person that, um, that I actually always think looks enough like me, even though he's much more handsome than I am, is Stanley Tucci. Oh, no, I don't think he's more handsome than you. He's, he's, he's a stone cold fox. He's half your size. <laughs> well, I guess that's true. Yeah, but hey, you know. <laughs> and he hasn't written a book and I bet he doesn't have a boy band record. He definitely, well, I don't know, he might do. Um, <laughs> to see dinner party, you can invite three guests, dead or alive, who would they be? Well, there's a quote on the back of my book that's from Alison Martino, uh, who is the friend that I was telling you about. And she says that the book makes her think of Joan Didion, but carrying Jim Thompson's gun in her purse while having a drink at a dive bar with Christopher Isherwood. So if I could have the three of those sitting with me in a dive bar, having a drink, I'd be pretty darn happy. You'd be all set. Amazing. <laughs> Go-to drinking song. And I, I gotta imagine it's one of these on this album. Wow, you know, I don't know if I have a go-to drinking song, um, but I, but you know, I'll, I'll, again, I'll stick with the theme and go with 99 Miles from LA, but the Johnny Mathis version, live. Live, I was gonna say Julio Iglesias, because I just listened to it and I was like, it made me laugh. My mother used to play it and I, it reminded me of her so much when I listened to it. Final wow. question, shaken or stirred? Shaken. Always. There you you stir. If you're doing a martini, you stir. Unless you oh, want ice. I mean, I like the shaking. I like the shaking because I like the sound. And I like what it looks like in the bar when the guy is, you know, shaking the martini. You see, Always that has nothing to do with the flavor of the drink. No, it has it's like the look of it and the sound of it. Not. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about, I'm going to drink it. I don't want to care to look at the guy shaking my drink around. Although it can be cool. But yeah, guys, the aesthetics of the experience, you know what I mean? It's like, 
Yeah, we, that's that's why we asked this question. Different strokes for different folks. David, P. David episode. David, mate, thanks so much for coming on the Shaking the Stirred show and sharing. 99 miles from LA. You can get it right now, people. You know, it's advanced copies, but it's out now. It's a fabulous read. I've had this advanced copy and I'm not giving it up. Um, go get yours. Can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you, sir. Always fun to chat. Always fun to chat. Everybody, check us out on the Shaken and Stirred show on Instagram. And you can also check us out on YouTube. And we'll be back next week. Thanks so much, everybody. Cheers. This podcast was produced and edited by Embassy Row.